Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. And I'm Madhavi Peters, also known as the Tropicalist. Well, hello, everyone. Today is the 13th of May, and I have the pleasure of having Dr. David Zweig on the Reorient Podcast, and I'm very much looking forward to it. So, Dr. Zweig, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Really, uh, really looking forward to our conversation today. So you were a long-term resident of Hong Kong. You uh, taught at the uh, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. You've been in the field for many decades, um, and you've written a bunch of papers, uh, op-ed pieces. You've published many papers across a wide span of topics related to China. I'm not going to go into all the details because there's too much to expound on. But you've got an incredible depth of knowledge and experience and background in China. So if you could sort of take us back to the beginning of your journey of how you became uh, someone interested in China and eventually becoming a scholar of China. Sure. So I would start the journey in 1968. Uh, sort of, I, even though I was Canadian, uh, in those days we still had a uh, the, on the left in in Canada we still opposed the war in Vietnam and and we looked to China to a certain extent. It wasn't the U.S. involved in a war in Vietnam and it wasn't the Soviet Union which was running around invading countries in Eastern Europe, but somehow China and the Chinese propaganda itself created this vision of Maoist China that the left accepted as being different than those two other societies. And so I decided to look into China. Was this as a a college student? This was an undergraduate student at York University. uh, And I wrote a couple papers uh, on Chinese politics, Chinese foreign policy. And basically the profs were really interested in my work and I got very interested in it. And so I, uh, in seven in 1974, uh, York University, uh, the Canadians faster than the Americans. I mean, everybody but the Americans basically were in China by 1973. So I have this huge cohort of friends: Danish, uh, Swedish, French, uh, German, and uh, we're in touch all the time. Um, and uh, I uh, I went uh, to China in 1974. Uh, as a Canadian exchange student and stayed there for two years. So um, so just to kind of set a little more of the context. That's when I learned Chinese, um, sure. It was a very revolutionary time. You were uh, sort of a left-wing uh, student. It was, uh, China was maybe leading the charge in the sort of anti-colonialist, imperialist uh, era, if that's a f- fair statement. And these other countries had already established relations with the PRC before the U.S., so you were able to have exchanges and movements there? Sure. Basically, from 1970 on, uh, the the Western alliance or the countries of the West, the Italians, uh, the French had had diplomatic relations since 65, uh, but the the Australians in uh, what 70, 71, maybe um, uh, Canada and seven in 1970 um, uh, established diplomatic relations before China got into the UN even. Um, and in fact, Canada was used as a place for negotiating uh, China's entry to the UN. So all of these countries 
were so the uh, the Europeans and so many of the students who went to China were center left. I wouldn't say at that time I was um, I was certainly not a Maoist, but we were we were Got you it. know I was a moderate to the left. Uh, but there were people who were much further left than us uh, in the Canadian cohort. Uh, I still have two very good, uh, almost Maoist friends from Italy right. uh, that I see on a regular basis. And we still talk about those days. So, yes, back in 74 to 76. At the same time, which was really interesting, was uh, we got to know North Koreans, North Vietnamese, I knew the guy who eventually became Kim Il-sung's Chinese translator. Um, and I met the him The Supreme once Leader in of North, North Korea. Korea. The Supreme Leader, the first Supreme Leader mm-hmm. of North Korea, right? We knew people from, these were all students okay. so uh, with us. Just to stay um, still on the topic of kind of your journey to becoming a China scholar, but since we're there at that point of time, can you just kind of give us a uh, sort of a quick feel for what your first trip and first stay in China was like, in addition to, you know, interacting with these people from all the world? What, what was China like when you first sure. uh, arrived? Well, it was, you know, people, the, the, the blue Mao jackets, everybody on bicycles. Uh, if you went to a restaurant, which I would do to practice my Chinese, you sat uh, six, seven people at a table that they didn't know. Um, you know, nobody ever called, the, everybody was called worker or, or comrade, right? Everybody was, con- was comrade. Uh, a very funny story was until I went to the University of Michigan in 76, to, and took a Chinese language course. I never knew the word xiaojia, right. right? Which is miss, and that's the in those days that was the common word for miss. But that was just not used in China, right? You called a young woman, you called her tongzhi, you called her comrade. Um, I, I lived in a dorm. I had roommates. Were you in Beijing? Uh, some of my room. I was at the Beijing Languages Institute, mm-hmm. and then at Beida. Okay. And I wound up over those two years. I wound up with three different roommates. Uh, one of whom was extremely patriotic and loved the revolution because he was an orphan and believed soundly. He was a scientist, actually, from the Nanjing astronomy. You know, the, you look up uh, at the sky, the telescope, mm-hmm. the Nanjing um, uh, Astrological Center. Um, uh, and we didn't get along very well at all because I would sometimes express doubt about China. And he was just really so pro-China. And, and it was, there was a lot of social pressure on us, I felt, a lot of social pressure. And so, for example, if we left a magazine, once I left a magazine lying around that had a picture of Mao Zedong on the front, on the cover, wearing a keffiyeh, right, a head, an Arab headdress. And it was, you know, China, oil, future oil kingdom. And I got into trouble. I was criticized by the officials of the university right. uh, for doing that kind of thing. But we were given the chance to mix uh, as foreign students. So I was on the basketball team and I was the only foreigner on the basketball team. That was my venue into the team. And so at one point I had to explain that there was an anti-Deng Xiaoping campaign uh, led by the Gang of Four in 1976. Uh, after the death of Joe and Lai. And so we met as a team and we were supposed to discuss why Deng Xiaoping was a revisionist, why he was trying to bring capitalism back to China. Wow. And no one on the team, no one on the team wanted to talk right. because everybody was watching their butts, right? 
And I was in the philosophy department at Beida, so I understood the deep Maoist, you know, radical Maoism, and and so I wound up being the one in the, on the team to explain to everybody why Dung was a revisionist. Somehow that doesn't surprise me. So you, while you were introducing them to the pick and roll, you were also explaining to yeah. them uh, uh, Deng right. Xiaoping's uh, errors of his, his ways. So we're actually still, at this time, still in the midst of the Cultural Revolution, right? Well, the end of the, it's the tail end of the Cultural Revolution. Okay. You know, the real Cultural Revolution is 66 to 69. That's when the violence is in the streets. Uh, by 69, the PLA moves in and sort of brings down the violence. And so from 69 onward, the violence is, is, is not public in the streets. There's private violence. And the universities were open because I know they were, for there's a period of time where the universities were closed and right. the students were sent to the countryside. Right. They reopened in 72. Okay. Um, and so I got in in 74. Gotcha. Uh, and and uh, so my roommate uh, was in the philosophy. One of my roommates was in the philosophy department. But we didn't know very much about these people. They'd live with, you'd live with them. They wouldn't give you. I never knew uh, anything about my roommate, uh, the roommate I had at Beida. He just wouldn't share any. I knew it his sister and his father was a, something in the factory. Right. In those days, everybody's father was a worker. Right. Right. Nobody wanted to admit that their father was a manager. Right. Right. In a factory. Everybody was a gongren. Everybody was a worker. That was the, the really interesting experience. So so lived there at the end of the Cultural Revolution as doubts started to emerge within China because Mao was weak and dying. And there was a major battle between the Deng Xiaoping, Zhou Enlai, the sort of reformist f- forces, and the gang of four who were trying to hold on to the radical policies which made them powerful. And so I was there in that period and able to watch it in the newspapers, to watch it in political campaigns, mm-hmm. to even watch it in Tiananmen Square. I have a collection of slides, one of the best slideshows in the world. Um, from the days of the critique, the criticism of the gang of four, two million people wound up going through Tiananmen Square. Many people who listen to this may not know, but before 1989, there was a massive protest in Tiananmen Square in April of 1976. And on that Sunday, perhaps as many as two million people passed through the square. I have really good photographs of that and give, and give talks on that. Uh, sort of from a historical perspective. But that gave us the feeling, and particularly me, because I was, and some of the other students, we were really interested in what was going on in terms of Chinese politics. So it gave us an understanding of factionalism, factional struggle, how it can work out, how to read it in the newspaper, stuff like that. And from from there, I then applied to the University of Michigan uh, for a PhD program. And uh, I had a thesis supervisor who was working, who wound up working for Jimmy Carter's National Security Council uh, on uh, China policy. He was responsible for that. What was his so name? I wound up being a Michigan Mike Oxenberg. Well, yeah, very well known. So very well. So known. you studied under one of the very influential China scholars from you right. know the set. And, and in a terrific political science department, University of Michigan. Yep. Uh, and so I learned a lot about research methodology, which I then was able to put into effect in my field research in China, living in the countryside, doing interviews, and then eventually doing surveys. So I've done about 15 surveys. You're uh, maybe just sort of, so you did your PhD and maybe tell us the sort of the focus area. And then you, it sounds like you, after you concluded your PhD, you went straight back to China uh, to do more field work. Well, 
my my PhD was I think is not of that the topic itself is less interesting uh, to some people I think to your your audience it was really to look at to what extent the radical leadership the the leftists in China were able to reintroduce a kind of great leap forward uh, policies during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, because during the Cultural Revolution, there was all kinds of unrest and China was leaning slightly to the left. And so these leaders tried to bring about some of the policies, larger collectives, closing down private markets, uh, taking away any kind of what were called uh, private plots, taking away any kind of private land that peasants had been promised under collectives. And I just looked at the extent to which they tried to do that and then started to look at, well, beginning in 1978-79, the reforms began and uh, China started to move towards decollectivization. And so I caught the tail end of that in 80-81. I was able in the end to be there in the countryside while decollectivization was taking place, while the land in the communes was being divided up to the families. And I was able to go and interview people and find out how they felt about that. The young people were nervous about it because they had never done private farming. People in their 50s, 50 years of age, were very happy about it because they had been private farmers in the 1950s before collectivization. So there are all kinds of ways to analyze that. So I did a book on the agricultural policies during the Cultural Revolution, and then was able to do a book about the reforms. Because in 8081, I lived in the countryside and was able to interview all these people, all these local officials about the reform era. So your background on China goes all the way back to the 1970s, and you've looked at China from sort of the rural... Actually, 1960s. Back to the 1960s, meaning that you started studying... You hadn't been to China, but you started studying uh, China back in the 1960s. Correct. In grad, in under, as an undergraduate, then I went to China as a graduate student to study for two years language. Then I went to Michigan. And while doing my PhD, I went back to China to do field research for my dissertation, right? And then the dissertation actually got me a postdoc to Harvard, where I turned my my dissertation into a book published by Harvard University Press and spent a year at the Fairbank Center, which is very well known, named after John King Fairbank. Um, uh, Ezra Bogle, who many people know, you know, uh, was very actively involved with, with that center. Um, and then I sort of settled down to being a regular academic, but each time I'd find an opportunity where I could to write a new grant proposal to a different foundation and then try and go and do field research in China, often at the local level, uh, through connections with various government ministries, a lot of them through the Ministry of Education, uh, rural reform groups. Uh, I knew the people who were very much involved in making the rural reforms in the 1980s, uh, some of whom got arrested uh, during the 1989 Tiananmen because they were all on the liberal side against the more hardline right. uh, people in, in 89. Yeah. And I know like in 1991, you've traveled around, you've met people from all spheres of, of life in China and really were able to, you know, at that time communicate to, uh, I guess, particularly Western interested Western groups, like what's was happening in China. 
because there was so much change and uh, policy change and social change uh, that was happening. It was, uh, it, and it was very much inaccessible to many people. So you played a really important role, I think, in in communicating the status of China to to much of the world. And then you came to Hong Kong in 1996, I believe, uh, and joined right. uh, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Right. Yep. Um, one one or two things I would mention was, you know, I, uh, a- ABC News, American uh, Broadcasting Corporation, hired me uh, in uh, uh, May of uh, 1989. Uh, they sent me into Beijing because Ted Koppel, uh, then Ted Koppel, um, thought who ran a TV show, uh, he thought that the, the leadership was going to crack down on the demonstrators in Tiananmen Square. So I wound up landing in Beijing the night of June 3rd and wound up being in the square at 2.30 on June 4th when the PLA opened fire. 2.30 a.m. Marched into the square. 2.30 a.m. That's right. So you yeah, were in yeah, the yeah. square 2.30 a.m. and when the PLA opened fire and you could – you and you witnessed that. Well, the bullets went over our heads. Amazing. We got, our, we got out of there. So um, – And then I hung around – I hung around in Beijing for about 10 days and, and traveled down to central China. And have you written about that, uh, what you observed uh, at Tiananmen Square? N- never, never in any extensive way. No, I wrote one article about, I went to the countryside back to visit people who I had known in 8081 and 86 mm-hmm. to try and find out what peasants knew and what local officials knew about uh, uh, Tiananmen. But I never, uh, in the end, never wrote anything about it, which is too bad, but I will. I mean, my goal is my goal is that now that I'm uh, semi-retired, uh, you know, st- uh, still keeping up and writing and doing, but I'm not formally uh, employed by HKUST. I'm going to sit down soon and start writing up, uh, you know, a lot of these events, a lot of these adventures. I think you. I think people would be really interested to to read your firsthand observations and recollections from these uh, really momentous periods in Chinese history. And you've got the time and freedom to do that, uh, which is great. Right. Yeah. Well, fascinating experience. So, so um, I mean, one sort of theme to sort of listening to what you've been involved in and observed in China over these last really like five decades, that China really even, you know, going back to the revolution, the Maoist period was always thinking big, big changes, big projects, uh, very bold. And there was always this idea, I think, of, you know, we'll try this and we'll adjust if it doesn't work. And so that it was big and bold, but also trying to maybe be practical in a way. There was always a tension between opening up and liberalizing as well as as sort of closing in and control. And so, right, um, tension. And even though the Communist Party has been in power since the beginning, you do have sort of different uh, factions or policies that do sort of take hold a period of time. So, my question for you is to what extent in your um, career as a China scholar do you sort of see pretty much continuity up through today? And to what extent do you actually think, no, these are really very, very different? Uh, it's a very different Chinese governing model in this period versus another period. Well, I, I really strongly support your view that that the Chinese have always wanted to uh, find a way, do things and sort of get back. I mean, I think in many ways, China wants to get back. 
right? They want to get back to the the glorious days of the Qing dynasty, right? In the in the late 18th century, when when they were glorious, right? When they were huge, and that's always been in Chinese people's minds. So in some ways, that drove Mao, but Mao always tried to do it through uh, just extremism and, and, and over exuberance for revolutionary change. And, and in that sense, he often failed and, and policies didn't get well coordinated. Um, and, and then you get Deng Xiaoping, who in many ways really represented the, the moderate or somewhat moderate strain within Chinese politics that you're talking about, trying to balance the, the control versus the opening. I mean, there's nobody, and, 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 and I've spent a lot of time writing about, I wrote a book called Internationalizing China, which talks about sort of that tension between opening and staying tight. And so this would be in the late 1980s, 1990s, right? And so each leader has had that tension within his own worldview. Um, uh, Deng was more interested in the opening, but when the opening got dangerous, he was willing, and as in Tiananmen Square, to send in the troops and crack down and kill people if he had to. So uh, Jiang Zemin in the in the two thousands, willing to join WTO, right? Believed in the private sector, right? Uh, and and was a much more open leader, sort of recovering from Tiananmen, much more open. And those were actually heydays of U.S.-China relations. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.